0: Hello, and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions brought in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I am joined live in studio by Aaron Malone, co host of Crypto 101 Podcast. Co-author of Crypto Revolution, and most importantly, the person who gave me the balls and help to get started on the podcast. So, uh, Aaron, first I thank you for uh, for helping out, helping us get started. He he, not only kind of gave us the thought on on you know diving deep into you know how you actually value assets, but also was kind enough to share as editor. Uh, so, uh, Lester, if you're listening, thanks thanks a lot and. Uh, also, if this series flops, you know, we, we all know who to uh, point finger, fingers at. So, Aaron, it's, uh, it's great to have you on.
1: Uh, it's great to be here. And yes, I take full blame and responsibility for any kind of catastrophe
0: that this show might bring. But any good stuff, it's it's all Josh. So, uh, Aaron, what what did you do before crypto? What brought you in the space originally? And then what brought you down the rabbit hole?
1: Well, I've lived a bunch of lives already in this body. I was a hockey ref for 13 years it professional for another 15, uh, serial entrepreneur. I started, I I think I'm on my ninth company now. Um, most of them were failures to be fair, but I learned a lot of lessons that way. And I ended up getting into crypto because no one else would hire me at a certain point in my life. I'd actually fractured my skull and had a severe concussion and I was, I was done. I mean, I really wiped off like three years of my life just sitting at home on disability, trying to get healthy. And finally I got healthy after getting another concussion, straightened my brain out finally. (laughs) And, uh, then I started applying for jobs and I got nothing, 700 job applications over a year and a half. And I got nothing. I got a trial hire at WordPress. My trainer loved me. I had perfect scores. I beat all their metrics that they wanted me to have, and they still didn't hire me full-time. And I was just devastated. And finally, my friend was like, look, I know you're having a really hard time, but I want you to build me a Bitcoin miner. It'll give you something to do. And I was like, Bitcoin, I've heard of that. Is that thing still around? And this was around October 2017. And he's like, yeah, it's a big deal right now. So I had nothing but time on my hands. And... If you know me, I don't have anything that I'm very gray area about. I don't have any likes or dislikes. I have obsessions. So when I got into crypto and I saw the opportunities that were there to finally establish the life I wanted, I just went completely a thousand percent into crypto.
0: And so when you, when you got a 1,000% into crypto, you, you then joined XYO Network. I believe that was your first uh, you know, foray into the space. So how did that come about and, and what kind of role were you doing there?
1: Actually, XYO was my third company, believe it or not. So the first company I ever worked for was Waves. And I worked for them for a day before I quit because I realized they were
0: scammy and fucking over their community. And I, I, I literally quit same day. I was like, I, I did not know that story. So that's that's pretty funny. That's very, uh, Bill Belichick, who, uh, joined, I'm a big Jets fan, and Bill Belichick joined the Jets for one day before he went to, uh, the Patriots and then destroyed and tortured my team for the rest of eternity. So, pretty funny to see, to see that.
1: I would love to be the Bill Belichick of crypto someday. <laughs> I might pull it off. I've got plenty of plays up my sleeve still. But anyway, I went from there and then I worked for, uh, Crypto Finance 24, which was a website for Savvy Digital. And that was my foray into actually doing crypto research. So they paid me to be a researcher and then write blogs and kind of regurgitate all this technical stuff into a format that anyone could understand. And they were a great company to work for. And then the bear market hit and, uh, you know, downsizing occurred. And that's when uh, I was actually an early investor in XYO and a big part of their community and I had a chance to speak at this conference they put on called Spatial and integrated myself further into the industry. And eventually they made me a job offer. I couldn't refuse to actually quit everything else that I was involved in and move to San Diego and work for them full time. And the rest is history.
0: And so from XYO um, you know, emerged you and Bryce as the host of, of Crypto 101 Podcast. So how did that come about? And, and you guys are actually one of the larger uh, podcasts in crypto. I mean, if you type in crypto on Apple, um, you know, a f- you know, a lot of the time you guys show at the top. So, you know, how did how did that emerge? How did you guys become the hosts? How did it grow so fast? And what are you, what is your average listener like?
1: We had uh, very different roles at XYO. Bryce was actually my boss there, if you can believe it or not. And uh, th- XYO bought the Crypto 101 podcast from its founder, Matthew Aaron, and somewhere along the way, they decided that they didn't want to do it anymore. So XYO didn't really care about the podcast. Matthew Aaron didn't want to work with uh, XYO, I guess. I'm not really sure what exactly happened there. But one day, um, you know, it comes in, Scott comes in and says, hey, uh, what do you think about taking over this podcast with Bryce? And Bryce and I were kind of like, man, being a podcast, like the last thing we want to do with our lives, honestly. But there was again, bear market downsizing is like, well, we either get laid off or we get to take over this podcast. So with Kevin in charge of running the business end of it, it the three of us were like, you know, we could dig ditches and be really happy as long as it's the three of us working together. So yeah, we'll do a podcast and we're going to take it to new heights and make it better than ever. I mean, it's an award-winning podcast. It's not just starting from scratch. It already has a listenership with an average of 12,000 listeners per episode, and we have eclipsed five million listens overall. So we had some big shoes to fill, and uh, you know, it was a little kind of nervous at first, but I think uh, we, we're in our groove now
0: and so what what is the average you know crypto one one podcast listener like? I mean, you have you know our our listenership is tends to be more you know institutional enterprise clients. Uh, you know you have plenty of of podcasts that are you know people that are are big personalities on crypto twitter and very involved with those communities. but i think it's it's very interesting that you guys have actually carved out a niche, and I'd love for you to kind of go into this of. Of just your average person. I mean, not just your average person who's super involved with crypto. Really, your 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 contractor in Louisiana. You know, your tugboat captain. I mean, you guys have done a great job at being able to build up an audience of 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 everyone and 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 helping. I mean, you guys have brought on very very sophisticated guests and kind of taking very complex ideas and simplifying it for everyone. So I'd love to know kind of how that came came to be. And if that's how it initially started or something that's kind of changed over time.
1: Yeah, that was the original thesis of the podcast. That's why it's called crypto 101. It's an intro guide to cryptocurrency for the average consumer. We really try and take all these very technical ideas and financial concepts and bring them to
0: a way that everyone can understand. And so, you know, when you guys first got started, was, was Crypto 101 actually making any money? And how did you kind of go about monetizing your usership?
1: At the very beginning, there was an ad service for podcasts. And we took over the podcast with, with an established sponsorship with LinkedIn that ended the month after we took it over as that ad network changed its rules and we no longer qualified. I think they wanted something like a million viewers per episode or something completely absurd like that. So we went from, you know, having full-time jobs, great salaries to no salary. Here's a podcast, by the way, the ad revenue that it does generate ends in a month and you can't afford to pay any of your existing
0: staff. So good luck. And and so I guess that's the part of every entrepreneur's story, where it's what happened, how did you tighten, you know, tighten your uh, shoelaces and and kind of make it through. And I mean, now you guys are very quietly be- become a, a, a very profitable business. So would kind of love you know you know that that story and 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 kind of how you guys went from just. You know, you Bryce and Kevin with a unmonetized podcast. You know, with some some beginners. You know, intro into crypto to to actually building a real business around this.
1: I can't say all the credit goes to Kevin, but like ninety nine percent of it goes to Kevin and his vision for building out beyond the podcast into all of these uh, info products and libraries that we've put together. Uh, the Crypto Revolution book was uh, a great way to get people's attention and we decided we're going to give away the book for free so everyone who orders the book they just pay shipping and it kind of gets them curious about crypto they learn just enough to want to know more and then we've got a whole library of how to videos and explanations and then we've got in my opinion the best community in all of crypto we have crypt nation which is a private community that people pay uh, every month for or they can pay uh, one time to be in it for life. We do coaching calls. We answer questions. We've got, um, we really wanted to be good shepherds. There's so many other groups out there and newsletter subscriptions that just take people's money. And we don't want to do that. We wanted to be good shepherds. We made everything really affordable, again, for the average consumer, not the average investor. So if you have even $100 a month to put into crypto, like you can still afford our educational services. And it's gone amazing. We have just such a supportive community. Every day, it's just nothing but gratitude and people helping each other. There's no cancer. There's no arguing. Uh, It's a really, really great environment.
0: I mean, so in in crypto, we always talk about how do you build the next great UX, right? How do we bring in the average person? And, And I mean, that's what Aaron, Bryce and Kevin have done. I mean, they have tens of thousands of average people that listen to their podcast that are getting educated about crypto. They have thousands of, of, of members in their groups that are, that are following the industry. And when, 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 you know, as somebody who's been knee deep in, in, in crypto for the last, you know, three years, when, when Aaron initially told me that he had groups of thousands of just average people interacting with crypto, I just, I, I, you, know, part of me didn't believe you as much as as much as I was, you know, impressed by you. I was like, "How is this possible?" But they've really built out a community. I mean, their 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 emails probably go out to tens of thousands of people. I mean, these are just average people interacting with the space, and it certainly shows you that there is a way to take crypto, simplify it, and 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 make it attractive for the average consumer. So I, I have to give you a lot of credit on that. So in addition to you know, crypto 101 and Crypto Revolution, everything else that you're doing there, you also are, and, and you know, started before all these jobs in crypto, been very interested in, in, in investing in crypto. So I would, I would kind of love to hear, you know, what does your research process look like today? Uh, and how did that compare to you know, when you first you know, built your first Bitcoin miner back in October 2017 and first started to fall a little bit further down the rabbit hole?
1: I did not come from a professional investing background. or I had zero financial education.
0: I think one of the reasons
1: I've been so successful at this is I am the average consumer and the characters that I play on our podcast represent the average consumer and the things they think, the questions I ask, I always try and put myself, I, I remember where I came from really. So I think that's a huge key for our success. And I've stayed very, very humble because anything can happen and I'll go right back to you know, the struggles that I've always known if I get too full of myself. So it's really important to communicate in the language that your listener can understand. I think one of the biggest roadblocks other podcasts and other companies have is they're speaking the language that they're comfortable with. They're talking about these high-tech details and decentralized idealisms, and they're pushing whatever agenda meets their own investment thesis rather than trying to tell people, Hey, it's okay. This space is not that scary. You're welcome to come in. No questions
0: are stupid. And let's actually spend time together. And so, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, you know, having been a guest on your podcast myself a few times, I mean, totally see that, you know, I think, you know, even, you know, uh, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll be on and I'll say something. And then Aaron is able to very simply say it. So, so, you know, back to kind of the investing, you know, the investing idea. So, you know, obviously, you know, when you're explaining something to a, to to you know a crypto one-on-one listener, it, it you know you you focus on simplicity. But you yourself are, are knee deep in the space. I mean, you know. 20 times more than I do about any of these different protocols and what they do. So I'd kind of love to know about like what your research process looks like today. Part of the part of what you do for for your listeners also is, you know, kind of point out some interesting tokens and interesting opportunities. And I'm wondering how how you go about identifying those assets. First of all, I feel like
1: a part of being humble is never being too sure of yourself. So I wouldn't say I have no idea what I'm doing, but I always try and take in as many viewpoints as possible. So on one hand, I use the TIE's professional vision platform to give me sentiment data. I use into the block for on-chain data. I love Flipside Crypto and their analytics for developer progress, but that only paints one side of the picture. I feel like the missing piece that people very easily overlook is the community. They look at user stats and transaction stats as users and a way to judge how many people are using the product. But I think these data-driven conclusions are missing a huge piece of the picture. So a lot of the things that I will do uh, when I'm trying to figure out if I want to invest something or not after looking at all the data is I'll just join the Telegram community. I want to see how active it is. I want to see how happy people are. I want to see that their community is pushing things forward. As absurd as it sounds, I want to know that someone in the community cares enough to make memes about this project because they actually believe in the team and what they're building. You see meme finance pushing some of the top coins I mean a lot higher than any technical podcast ever could. Perfect example of that is Chainlink. They've got their community called the Link Marines. You've got the Synthetic Spartans. I know I sound like Uh, We're watching like a Nickelodeon show right now, but no, I mean, if a community is really rabid about something, they actually have a community. One of the best communities around crypto is decred.
0: So I feel like the strength of a community can make or break a project. And so, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. And that's, you know, what we try to capture with, you know, our sentiment data, right, is trying to capture, um, you know, how positive or negative these communities are. But I think certainly engaging with them is something thing that's incredibly important. I mean, I did, a, I did a podcast episode, which is, you know, one that's released right before this. And we talked about, you know, Ethereum. And, and you know, sure, there are lots of platforms that, that are going to come out that may be faster than Ethereum, that, you know, may be cheaper than Ethereum, that may be able to process more transactions than Ethereum but they didn't have an ETH Denver, right? They didn't have this massive community of thousands and thousands of developers of applications being built on top of them. And it's, it's certainly, um, you know, it, it's, it is, I think it's the, mo- and, and we had Lou Kerner on the podcast. We just released that episode and Lou Kerner talked about the fact that community is everything. In crypto, community is everything because in a market void of fundamentals, the only thing is really community and kind of the wisdom of the crowd.
1: And I think having a decentralized nature which most cryptocurrencies follow, the community is your fundamental value. And it's hard to quantify that in numbers other than transactions and wallet addresses and things like that. But you're really missing a lot of the picture. If you don't actually spend time in telegram, one example I give is this crypto called constellation. I became introduced to this when we had Ben Jorgensen, their founder on our podcast. And I was so impressed with him that I wanted to be involved in what they were building so I went and I looked, did some research, bought the minimum amount of tokens I needed to run a node on their network and then listed an application. And then I waited, then I waited, then I waited, didn't hear anything. So I went to their telegram and I said, hey, what's up with you know, these nodes? You know, I want to run one. And then I realized that it was a good old boys club where they had to vote to approve nodes, almost like EOS. And it was, there was a huge barrier to entry. So even though I am who I am, they didn't give a shit because I was going to take a cut of their action essentially if they allow me to run a node on their network. So that is a huge barrier to entry and barrier to growth. So I said, man, I don't know if I really want to be a part of this anymore.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's certainly, you know, a, a great point. I mean, if you look at, You know, Uniswap with the uni, the the launch of uni the other day. I mean, the reason that it's taking off is because of the community aspect, because you're now rewarding everybody for participating in the network. And I think anybody who doesn't focus on that is purely misguided in this space, because at the end of the day, the reason that Bitcoin works, Bitcoin's not the most powerful, best network, not the fastest, not the cheapest network. It doesn't have the largest block size, but Bitcoin has the brand name and has the community and has people that will, I mean, if you think about Bitcoin, Bitcoin doesn't have a foundation that raised $500 million to invest in its developer development. You have the community that's funding Bitcoin developers, right? And I mean, that community aspect is, 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 you know, the biggest thing.
1: Yeah. And one thing that Bryce always talks about in his videos, he says that prices are people, Prices of assets are people willing to pay this because they find that is an acceptable value and a good price point. Whether it's Bitcoin at $3,000 or Bitcoin at $12,000, someone is willing to pay that. People are willing to renounce citizenship to be able to hold Bitcoin in some cases. If that's not a community that you want to be a part of, what's wrong with you?
0: And so... You know, we kind of dove a little bit into, and, I, and I'd love to kind of hit this you know, even further later, just how you're actually evaluating these assets, how you're valuing the assets. But my question is, how do you identify new assets? Like, how do you even start, right? Like, I'll go on to CoinGecko or CoinMarketCap or even our own platform, and I'll see like, 2000 assets, right? And like I'll sort by different things like where what's seen the biggest changes in Twitter activity and what's getting the most news coverage and media coverage and, and different things like that. But you guys have like you guys were really early on Ocean Protocol which is um, you know absolutely surged this year. I think it had a bit a uh, Binance listing as doing super well. So how do you even get started? Like I mean, you know, sure you can find the Telegram group once you identify the asset, but how do you identify the assets?
1: Because um don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm still like the average consumer mindset. Like I don't have like these amazing tools or like insider groups that tell me things like I'm not a part of any good old boys club. So what I do is I simply follow the smart money because there's tons of VCs out there that invest in crypto and they put their portfolios online. It's very easy to see what they've invested millions of dollars into and what they believe in. So it's right there. It's it's basically an open source investment thesis if you're willing to follow it. So and you literally just Google it, you know, crypto VC and uh, crypto venture capital, and you just go down the list and see which cryptocurrencies keep popping up all the time. And then another thing that I'll do is I'll just simply go down the list of CoinGecko and I'll go into the five, six hundreds, eight hundreds, even thousands looking for coins that have a marketable name, something that actually jumps out and doesn't look stupid like Bitcoin green, like zero Bitcoin forks. That's one rule. Um, and then I want to see that they have good trade volume compared to their low market cap. Because that tells me that there's a small group of people that are actually behind this thing. And they're going to try and build some of the things up. So we found this little thing called Presearch that had less than a million dollar market cap. And they're going to be on our podcast next week. And they're trying to actually compete with Google at less than a million dollar market cap. How do you not take just a small roll of the dice for something that I think their daily volume is like
0: maybe two or three times their actual market cap in some days. And so, you know, you, you go on union square ventures website or Andreessen's website, you find a new asset, you know, Where's the first place that you're going to find information about that token? Where's the first place you're doing research? Are you going to the website? Are you Googling them? Is there like what is the what is the initial place that you go to find information on the asset? And then, you know, how long does it take you to go from, hey, I'm looking at this to, hey, I want to place a bet on this asset?
1: Yeah, the first thing I do is I go to the company website and that's gonna tell me how good they are at communicating with the outside world. If they have all the information I need to know about the project right there, very easy for me to find. They've got a blog, you know, on the homepage, it actually tells me what the hell the thing is. And it's not just a bunch of floating vertices there for no reason. Um, Then I say, okay, these guys actually are, like, they know their target audience. They're good at communicating. Very often we'll find that they just threw up a website in two days, paid no attention to it. Things are not updated. And to me, that's not a professional project and I'm probably going to move on. The website is still a big deal for me. After that, I'm going to Google the name of the project with the word scam after it. And it's going to bring up Reddit threads of people that are always criticizing things. And I'm going to read all that criticism and see if there's anyone there defending it to see what these experiences are. I mean, no matter what project you Google in that fashion, you're going to find someone that says it's a scam. You just don't want to have a shitload of people saying it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, especially in light of all the scams that we've actually had in this industry. So, you know, when you're due diligencing a token, I mean, I guess you, you mentioned it with pre-search already, but how often are you actually interacting with the teams behind these protocols? When you're going on Telegram into these chat, chat groups, are, are, the, are the founding team there to answer your questions? Is that, is that a big part of your process? I
1: wouldn't say it's a big part. In general, I don't want the founders to be in Telegram. I want them to be too busy to have that kind of time. But I'd like them to be able to do weekly or monthly AMAs, someone from the founding team, maybe not the CEO. But I think business people should be busy doing business, and they shouldn't have time to be on Twitter and Telegram all day. Otherwise, uh, I, it kind of lessens the confidence for me in some cases, unless they are just insanely good at delegating. For instance, we talked to Charles Hoskinson about how to be a successful entrepreneur, and he said... I. He's got a chief of staff. Like He only has to talk to one person. He gives them directions all day and they take care of everything else throughout his different companies. So it makes sense in that regard. But there's a lot of people I know that that don't have that. And they probably should spend less time on social media and more time working.
0: And so when you identify a token that's interesting to you, right? You go through that entire process. You do some due diligence. You look at the data. You go into the Telegram group. How do you identify whether or not the price is right like it, one of the biggest challenges to me you know from an investing point of view is just knowing when the right time to actually enter a position is cuz in the case of you know of some some tokens i mean with with most you know any anything that had an initial coin offering is now down like 90% or 80% right and so you know you know certainly it's like oh hey you know this This token is has, has seen a dip, let me buy the dip, but then it dips again and then it dips again and then it dips again. So how do you identify the right place to enter? And when do you know it's the right time to take your money off the table?
1: I'm looking for entry when there's just a long period of dead silence. If you look at trading view, I mean, you just see nothing but just chop sideways. When it's moving sideways to me, that's the time to start accumulating and buying in so long as In Telegram, I'm seeing that there's plenty of people that are not worried about price that are saying over and over that they're holding long term and things are going to be fine. That uh, really gives me the confidence that that this is going to be a successful accumulation that will get pumped later. But I feel like it is very important uh, not just to have strong fundamentals, but have strong markets that need to be on good exchanges. Like They don't have to be on the best, but they need to be on good exchanges they need to have good access, good liquidity. They need to have market makers. That is an absolute must. If you don't have a healthy liquid market, your token's going to go nowhere and eventually investors are going to get frustrated and leave. It is at least as important to have a healthy market as a working product.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're a hundred percent right there. I mean, we've seen that with so many projects in this space, you know, like nothing on Coinbase has fizzled out yet, right? Like nothing on Binance has really fizzled out yet. I mean, you know, and and we, we, we've talked about this a few times before, but you know, the idea of a lot of people getting mad at DeFi and all the speculation that's occurring, but at the end of the day, you know, speculators are needed. Like you need speculation because speculation drives liquidity and liquidity drives growth. And without speculators, this market is never going to grow. And so, I, I mean, I certainly agree with you there. And so, when you when you you know go through the whole process, you identify token, you you, you know you place a bet on it. What is your average time horizon looks look like on these assets? When do you know that hey, I should I should be exiting a position?
1: I think we have a good two to three year bull run coming, and I want to see something that is going to be mature at that time. For example, if you look at iota, iota is going to be one of these groundbreaking, world changing things, but it's got a much longer time horizon for mass adoption we're not in a world yet and nowhere close to a world where we have smart cities and autonomous vehicles and drones everywhere. And that's what it's built for, for all these machines to interact with each other. Does that make it a good investment in a token? No. Long-term equity that I want to hold for 20 years? Yes. But um, while I'm a huge fan of IOTA, I don't have any.
0: And so you also are are a pretty active trader as well. And so What makes you decide to trade a token versus invest in it? Like, are there certain tokens that you trade very actively because you just know that there are interesting opportunities to trade that token, but would never actually want to hold your money in it?
1: Yeah, it's really a case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You really have to have a completely separate personality for what you're day trading. You cannot have any emotional attachment or belief in it whatsoever. It's only data driven. Nothing else matters other than what the technicals are saying And when, you know, it starts to cool off from its spike, you got to sell that thing off. And also, it doesn't matter how you feel about the team or the project, you know, take Tron, for example, a lot of people have said many different things about it. But if that's the hottest coin of the day, that's what I want to be in. And then I'm going to be out of it the next day. So I try to not day trade any of the coins I really, really believe in, unless I've got a set strategy to accumulate when it's going sideways. Like when Tezos was bouncing around between two eighty dollars and $3 for like a month. I mean, that was just like Halloween for me. Like I was just collecting candy because it was very, very predictable. I could buy and sell it very easily and just accumulate more. But when I'm trying to just trade to accumulate dollars, I don't want to be in something that I believe in. It's going to be like, it's very hard to separate myself from my beliefs, and my emotions and the project. So I'll just try and trade whatever shit coin is hot that day. And never think twice about it after I've sold it.
0: And so, as an investor, how do you separate out the trading part? Right. So you're an investor, and you you take a position in, let's say, Ocean, and then Ocean lists on Binance. You know, uh, you know, kind of, you know, switching between those two hats. Are there times that you just are like, okay, this makes no freaking sense that it went up this much. I'm out. Or you are you just so sure about these positions that you're just like, you know what, I don't care what happens in the near term. I'm just going to stick with this. And if it drops 20%, you know, it will go back up. In those situations, I always try to sell half. I was fortunate enough to buy
1: Parsic PRQ at less than half a penny in July. And then it shot up to 32 cents this month, over 6,000% gain in less than 90 days. And I'm losing my mind and I'm telling, I did this through a, a partnership. So I'm telling my other partners, we need to sell the whole thing. You know, take profit and amazing. And they're like, no, no, no. It hasn't even been listed on any major exchanges yet. It's still got a long way to run. Just be patient. So I'm like, okay, I'll just be patient. And the other day it's like at 12 cents now. So, I mean, we're still in like an absurd amount of profit, but I was like, you know, we could have had an extra like hundred thousand dollars they were just sold off and then rebought back in.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's funny. I was talking to somebody about uh, DraftKings. Um, uh, who had bought DraftKings pre-IPO at 8 bucks and it went up to $42 and they were able to they had a lockup period of 6 months and they were able to sell part of it at a discount during their lockup period because they sold it to another accredited investor or whatever. And now DraftKings at 50 bucks and they're like mad about it. And I'm like take a step back here. You just made Five times on your money, right? Like, you know, at the end of the day, I I totally agree. Like, you have to be comfortable taking profit off the table because one thing that we've seen about crypto is just as fast as anything can go up, it can go down, it can go down more even faster. We've actually been doing a lot of research, um, you know, using our SIGDEV data and trying to understand what actually moves the market. And one of the clearest takeaways, and we're still doing research and all that research is going to get published, but one of the clearest takeaways that we've had is that markets react to bad news in crypto way faster than they react to positive news. So, you know, I think, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're right in in needing to take some, some profits, you know, off of the table. Um, So yeah, please. And just one other point to that is don't be married to
1: one opportunity. Just because you've got one killer thing doesn't mean you need to ride it to the very bitter end. Crypto is so amazing. There's going to be a new opportunity every week. So get in, take your profits and
0: get out. If you made money, you're good. Yeah, I mean, totally. And also, you know, just the idea that, you know, you're talking about liquidity, right? And, you know, I can't imagine Parsec has very much liquidity, but, the, you know, and, and Aaron is shaking his head right now. The, the great, you know, the, the the one good thing about illiquid markets is that if for whatever reason they do become liquid later, but they're not liquid, you know, at the current moment, you know, somebody else in the market could go and throw 30 grand and then the price doubles. So, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are great opportunities to, to, you know, on paper, have the value of your of your holdings go up, but but in reality, you know, you know that that's kind of a little bit harder to, to you know you know to to tell whether or not that's going to happen. But so so you know, you weren't always um, you know deep in crypto, um, and and you know you you I guess were more of you know had more of a macro view on the world before you entered into crypto. So I wonder how the at macro landscape impacts how you're allocating to digital assets today. I mean, I know you're basically trading full time on the side. Um, are there times where you're just out of the market because of some certain macroeconomic condition, or is it more just a thing that you keep in the back of your head and, and kind of reinforces your bullish thesis about the asset class?
1: Yeah. I mean, uncertainty is worse for markets than bad news. I think uh, bad news causes people to sell, but uncertainty is what keeps people out. And a lot of America has been kept out of crypto because of regulatory uncertainty for all these years. So when there's times that people are uncertain, they just take their money off the table just to wait and see. So we're seeing a lot of that happening in the markets right now as we get into this election. You know, It could have drastic ramifications for the economy depending on who wins. And I really can't tell you one way or the other which one's the best. So that's just uncertainty. So I I do have some of my funds waiting in cash to buy another dip if it really comes, but At the same time, you know, Bitcoin went down three percent today. Like, I don't care. I can still sleep for 12 hours very soundly if it's ranging in that area. And I don't care if Ethereum goes down 10-15%. Like, we're in a volatile asset class for a reason. We know these things are going to happen. You just get used to it after you've been here for a while. So I, I am concerned about a lot of governments following China's lead and clamping down and spying on their citizens and trying to be more controlling. We know that. Russia and the U S and Australia would all love to do these things if they could get away with it. So it is very concerning that we're moving towards a digital dollar and moving towards a cashless society where everything's going to be tracked and nothing's going to be private ever. Um, If you haven't listened to Joe Rogan's podcast with Edward Snowden that came out last week, he was talking about how there's private companies that all they do is hack iPhone data And sell that to world governments, not just ours, any world government that wants to know about you. That's a problem. So you could be, I'm all about Team America and I don't care what they know, I'm not doing anything wrong. That's cool. But what happens when that same data is in the hands of Ukraine or Iran or China or some other enemy of uh, America? That is a much bigger problem. So it reinforces why we need an option than the current system we're in. We need some kinds of privacy. So I'm a huge advocate of Monero, huge advocate of what's being built at the secret network. I think that has potential game-changing ramifications for the entire world once you add smart contract capabilities into encryption. Huge fan of what Horizon's building, Komodo. I think these are going to be very necessary tools. And then you've got something really amazing underground like Skycoin, that's even a building uh, a peer-to-peer internet. Was that the
0: McAfee coin, Skycoin? Um, I think he he shielded it briefly. I think he got a Skycoin tattoo at one point, actually, which is pretty funny. But I, you know, it's funny, you you know, the entire time you were talking, I was like, you're talking privacy, governments, this and that. I'm like, well, that's not really the Bitcoin thesis anymore. That's more the Monero and Komodo and Horizon. So interesting to to hear you take that view. So are you then, you know, given, given this kind of backdrop, I mean, do you think that a Monero has more room to grow than a Bitcoin? Or are you just much more comfortable holding your, your capital on Bitcoin? Like, how are you allocating between privacy coins and, you know, more just, I guess, you know, traditional cryptocurrencies, for lack of a better word?
1: I think privacy coins are important for transactions. I don't necessarily see them as being a necessary store of value today. That doesn't mean that won't change later on. But Bitcoin is becoming the de facto digital store of value. And that's nowhere near its peak. There's a ton of room to grow there still. That train is, is still full speed ahead. So I would say you know Bitcoin as a store of value is still the place to be. But in the future, uh, it could trickle down into something like Zcash or some of these other things. I'm not sure yet where it might go. But again, uh, Monero was one of the first communities I ever joined. And the community itself will tell you right away, like, this is not an investment vehicle. This is not something to speculate on. This is a tool for freedom and privacy. You know, if you're here just
0: trying to make money, you're here for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly interesting. And and that kind of... You know, makes me think. You know, you know, when I when I was asking macroeconomic uncertainty, I was thinking more along the lines of you know how the economy is actually performing in the stock market. But I think all those points that you bring up are interesting, um, and so I kind of want to tie both together. And and basically, like, do you think there's room for? Private stable coins, if you know it's not it's it's less an investment thesis and more just, hey, I need to transact capital, or are you you know of the belief that you know the the Federal Reserve is just printing an unfathomable amount of money and you'd rather you know have your money in a hedging asset like Bitcoin and potentially just transact on other private networks that aren't tied to the US dollar?
1: I think the next evolutionary step in crypto is private stable coins. I'm really surprised it's not already out yet, in fact but i'm sure it will be sometime in the next couple of years and that's going to be a huge regulatory battle but i th- consider that like a plan b you know i i want to be i want to be optimistic and hope for the best but also be prepared for the worst so just as you'd have some cash on hand in a safe i would want to have some of my stuff in a private stable coin for a rainy day or some kind of disaster but i don't feel any threat to holding my wealth in
0: Bitcoin or real estate at this time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly, you know, certainly interesting. The idea of a, of a private stable coin and, and, and kind of figuring out where you want to hold your wealth. But, you know, the one question that I have is, you know, you bring up, you know, Zcash and Monero and things like that, but most users aren't using the shielded privacy features of those networks. So, you know, I I wonder what it, it's going to take, I mean, I think it, it was either Zcash or Monero, only 12% of transactions. I don't know if you know the, the stat, yeah. Zcash, like only 12% of transactions are shielded. So, I mean, I, I wonder who's actually using these, these private networks. And obviously there's some level of illicit activity that's occurring there, but I, I totally see the use case as to, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, illicit activity, it, you know, like they say, beauty in the high, is in the eye of the beholder, but so is illegal activity. There's a lot of money that is fleeing from communist China using Tether, USDT. They want to be able to get their money out in dollars so the government can't confiscate it. Is It's illegal in China, but is that really a criminal activity or an act of desperation to save your life's wealth? It depends on how you look at it. So I don't think there's any cocaine drug lords in Colombia that are still using Bitcoin. Now that it's been proven time and time again to be pseudo at best. Uh, and why? They don't have to. They can just use normal US dollars through HSBC and JP Morgan. Those banks actually have billions of dollars set aside to pay fines for money laundering for all these organizations. They don't need crypto. And,
0: and so- yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you're you're definitely uh, definitely not wrong on that. I mean, the uh, you know we'll occasionally see you know some illicit activity happening with Bitcoin and Chainalysis on their site. If you go to, I don't know, just Google Chainalysis markets or Chainalysis market intel, you can actually see they're showing you the percent of Bitcoin's outstanding supply which is held. Um, you know, illicitly, which I think is super interesting, but it's certainly not a big number. I mean, you know, back in the day with, you know, when the Silk Road was much bigger, you didn't have, you know, governments didn't have blockchain analysis capabilities, right? You couldn't go onto the Bitcoin blockchain and, and necessarily, you know, identify who these individuals were because they weren't KYCing on exchanges and having their identity tied to them. But now, you know, it feels like it's changed to the point where a, a regulator would rather somebody transact on Bitcoin than transact with the U.S. dollars because it's much more easily trackable. I mean, with the, the Twitter hacker, they get caught in like 30 minutes or something ridiculous like that. Um, so kind of shifting, uh, you know, back to, to trading and then I'd love to get into DeFi right after this. But how is your how has your performance been amidst the bull market? both as a trader, but also as an investor and a person who took positions, uh, you know, you know when, when tokens were really at the bottom? And where have you kind of seen, uh, you know, better performance over the past year?
1: It's actually really hard to beat simply holding an asset, because an asset will grow a half a percent, 1%. It's going to have these very small, unnoticeable gains. Whereas a trader, you're always trying to get 3%, 5%, whatever larger number it is. And, get in before some spike, and you've got all these different tools to try and get an edge to when you think price is going to go up. But simply just holding something, I mean, you just wake up overnight, oh my God, this thing's up 30%. There's no way I would have been able to catch that as a trader. So some of my biggest profits are things that I just simply bought and held from the bottom. As a trader, it's been more helpful to play short bets as things are going
0: back down. That's much more certain and predictable than when things are going to spike up. And in terms of certain and predictable, are you talking about bounces when things go down or are you talking about actually taking short positions in assets?
1: Yeah, I I mean like leverage futures trade. So when something's already had a big run up and it's gone sideways and you see it starting to lose momentum, uh, it's pretty easy to just take a short futures bet and make some money as it comes back down to the next uh, support level.
0: And so as a, as a trader, how do you go about managing your risk, both in terms of with the positions that you have open on exchanges, diversification, but also things like custody, because you're not trading such a small amount of capital. How do you make sure that your, your funds are actually secure and, and that's not something that you have to, to worry about at night? I
1: try to never risk more than 1% or 2% of my total portfolio per trade, no matter how sure I am. No matter how sure I am. A great example was Sushi. Sushi in a matter of uh, 72 hours was going to have a token burn. They're going to reduce their reward supply by like a factor of 10. And they got listed on like every major exchange that there could be. Uh, and there was one other thing. I forget what it was, but I mean, there's the most bullish indicators I've ever heard in my life. I still would not risk more than one or 2%. And I'm glad I didn't because that price went nowhere, but straight down right after all the hype didn't pay off. So uh, very, very important to always manage your
0: risk, no matter how much of a sure thing it is. And it's also a buy, you know, you know, sometimes it, it pays to buy the rumor and sell the news, right? And that's the thing that we kind of see over and over again, right? You know, like with with exchange listings, a lot of times it's the announcement of the exchange listing that pumps the price. And then when it's actually listed on an exchange, the price goes down. Um, so yeah, you know, it's certainly correct, but kind of back to your, you know, risk management.
1: Yeah. And then uh, Nick Cowan from the Gibraltar Stock Exchange did a great presentation at our Crypto Hedge Fund Summit talking about risk management. He talked about no more than 1% risk per trade and no more than 6% of your capital in open positions at any time. So if what you're doing is not working, you still have another 94 chances to figure it out and get right. And sometimes if it's just not working at all, you just step away and wait. There's nothing wrong with your move just simply being waiting. Waiting is not a a lack of a move. It is a move itself. And right now, I'm waiting. I haven't done any live trading in weeks. I'm simply just waiting now to see where Bitcoin is going to settle. Is it going to take another crack at 12K? Or are we going to have to retest uh, the 9K level again and reaccumulate some more in order to break that next
0: level? I'm not sure yet. So my position right now is waiting. And so you've also done a little bit of event driven trading as well. Um, And, you know, you kind of, you know, made made comment on that with the sushi thing, with the upcoming listings, with the token burn. So as a as a as a trader, you know, what are those types of events? You know, what are the things that you're looking for? Kind of the things that, you know, you know, technicals and and community and all that aside, just in terms of news and events and things that you've you've found in crypto to move price? You know, what are those and, and, you know, kind of how do you action on them?
1: Yeah, when a token is brand new, there's no price history or technicals to go through. So the price discovery phase is beautiful if you're in really early. And by early, I mean day one, like within the first few hours, in fact. That's when you're going to see the biggest gains. Um, There's a lot of stuff in DeFi right now that's less than a month old and is already struggling to survive. But there are some great chances to 2, 3x your money. If uh, you just got into uh, at the right time, sold when price skyrocketed and you can rebuy again, you can do that two or three times maybe, but then you kind of want to, you know, really
0: see what what are the catalysts for that, those types of moves? Like, is that, is that something getting listing on an exchange? Is that a partnership? Is that like, what is actually the, the catalyst or do you think there's no catalyst? It's just a lack of liquidity that makes it easy to drive up the price.
1: It's lack of liquidity and product updates. You'll see something happen very quickly where someone uh, will cap the supply, or they'll decide to do a token burn, or they've added another asset for providing liquidity. Whatever it is, it's some update that makes the product better, and therefore people believe it's now worth more to have a token that's attached to it.
0: And so what are your thoughts on the recent DeFi mania, and how are you positioning yourself to take advantage of those opportunities?
1: It's a very fascinating financial experiment. And that's all I look at it as, as an experiment. And it's fun to experiment. There's a lot of Bitcoin maximalists out there that hate DeFi. But to me, they all sound like Peter Schiff that are stuck in their own little echo chamber. And they've forgotten that innovation doesn't end where their comfort zone does. And people are, are doing financial experiments now to see what's possible with programmable money. So I think it's going to be a huge thing that continues for many, many years. Right now, it's just in its early phases. Eventually, the hype's gonna die down. People are gonna be able to quietly experiment and program and build out more robust systems, but we're gonna see something that comes out of this that's very revolutionary. I don't know what it's gonna be. Uh, it might not even exist yet, but DeFi is definitely
0: something that has the power to change the world. And so, as, as an investor and as a trader, and as somebody who manages a, uh, you know, a very large community, Uh, you know, what, what types of advice are you, are you giving the people in your community, but also how are you, are you, are you taking positions in these things? Are you yield farming? Are you, you know, are you, did you, did you receive a ridiculous amount of, uh, uni in the airdrop? You know, how many, how many, uh, MetaMask wallets do you have, you know, are, first of all, are you trying to take advantage or are you more just like, Hey, I think this is a thing. But there's a lot of shit going on. I don't know how to play it. I'm just going to set this one out and kind of, you know, you know, step up to bat next time.
1: You have to have balls to make money. Scared money doesn't make money. So I have some of my portfolio in it. Again, risk managed. Instead of having 1% of my position in DeFi, I have all of DeFi that makes up 1% of my portfolio. So I'll take a couple flyers here and there. And I really look at team. A lot of these DeFi teams are totally anonymous. But I look at what exchanges are supporting them, what other VCs might be supporting them, what kind of backing do they actually have, what smart money actually believes that this has a chance to work. So one of these platforms is Compound, Compound's backed by all these huge VCs. You know they're not going to let that thing fail. SushiSwap, as ridiculous as that entire story is, got adoption by everyone. You've got one of the smartest people in crypto today. You know, Sam uh, Bankman-Fried, who's really helped keep this thing alive and transition it to stability. You know, it's not his responsibility to keep it alive, but he did it anyway because he believed in it and he believed in the community. So maybe there's something there. I've got a little bit of sushi. Uh, I also want to try this whole liquidity providing experiment with Uniswap and Sushi and see if this really can generate a passive income over time. So these again, it's all just experiments. And if everything I have in DeFi goes to zero, it's a one percent loss. I can make that up in the traditional markets very, very easily.
0: And so, I think you've alluded to this, uh, you know, a bit when you when you mentioned regulatory risk. But what worries you most about about the crypto space? Um, you know what do you think are the biggest risks? And also, I mean, you mentioned you know taking small position sizes or something that helps you sleep at night. But is is there anything, you know, crypto related that keeps you up at night and and that and that you know you're 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 kind of tossing in your sleep? Just like, oh, if Binance gets hacked, if this you know regulator you know does this, if it turns out that Tether is only one percent backed by U.S. dollars, like, is there any? Do you think of, there are any existential risks for this space, or do you think that this space is matured enough that we're kind of in a really good space now?
1: There's always risk, and we teach Crypt Nation to uh, really manage their platform risk by using multiple exchanges, multiple wallets, never trusting anybody, not even us, and really making their own decisions. So my platform risk is extremely well managed. Uh, I do come from like the IT background and security and stuff, so I understand that really well. I sleep very, very good at night as long as I don't have futures positions open. There's so much market manipulation that goes on in some of these smaller things that even if I'm only leveraged 3x, something can take a spike down 30% and I lose all my money. Where if I'm just holding or trading the actual asset, when it bounces up, I still have it. So that, that stuff pisses me off and I've been victimized
0: by it more times than I care to admit. And so, uh, you know, my next, I, I have one other, well, actually I'll ask this then I have one other question, but so what has you most excited about crypto? What has me most excited about crypto is this is a once in
1: human history opportunity to transact in a currency and store value that is not in the full control of any government, bank, the wealthy elite that dictate to the rest of us how we can live our lives and how far we can go. This is literally the only chance we've ever had to opt out of the system of oppression and wage slavery that has gone on
0: for thousands of years. And so adding in one other question, you know, as you talked about, you know, going three x long on a futures position and getting wrecked while you're sleeping, which means that at some point you've invested in some shitty shit coins. So my question for you is, what is the shittiest shit coin that you've ever invested in and you could name multiple shit coins. (laughs) I should just give you my ether scan address. I'm still holding
1: all of them just in case. Let's go run, run through the list. Uh, let's see. There was oyster pearls. (laughs) That was a good one. Um, Bab, uh, bank account based blockchain. I still have shit loads of that. Uh, but Hey, they survived the bear market. They came out with their app. You never know. Uh, let's see. There was, uh, Uh, Oh, let's see. The worst ICO I ever did was this like uh, AI driven dating app called like Viola or something. (laughs) They came out with a product and I mean, the tokens are usable on their platform, but man, if only
0: I. So how's that working out for you? How many tokens you have left or you've used it all on the platform?
1: I don't (laughs) even think I've signed up for the platform. I didn't even, I didn't even know they were live. I think I checked once like last year and they were still building. So I was like, okay, cool. I, I heard you're a bit of a Spank chain maximalist actually not my portfolio but personally a big fan of what they're doing yeah
0: <laughs> so you know my last question is uh, if you could be an advisor for any uh, any company in this space uh, who would it be and why
1: i would want to be an advisor to coinbase because they are already so far in the lead that they don't even see the rest of the world behind them and they've completely lost touch with what their competition's doing with the sentiment around their services are I mean they could they could really stay in the lead, but the way they treat their customers and approach customer service and their community is completely backwards from uh what they should be doing in crypto um, so as far ahead as they already are, they could be much further ahead if they could just change a few things
0: yeah, I mean, I certainly think that's the case for a lot of businesses right I mean you know it's it's funny that this market is is only 10 years old, right? Bitcoin is only 10 years old, but it feels like Coinbase is older than 10 years, doesn't it? Like, it, it feels like they've been around forever and they, they're not a, in any other market, they'd be a startup, but in crypto, they're very much the established, you know, dominant player in the space. And it, it's funny, like in in crypto, if anything was started before 2017, even if something was started in 2017, it's it's not a startup anymore. And it's just funny how that compares to, uh, you know, other markets. I mean, Binance was launched in what, 2018 and all of it, it it's a startup, but it's, you know, it's Binance.
1: Yeah, I believe June 2017 is when Binance started. And they were the quickest company in history
0: to have a billion dollar valuation. That's uh, that's wild. So last question is just how can people reach out to you? How can they find out more about Crypto 101, Crypto Revolution, and the different things that you guys are working on?
1: If you type crypto into any podcast platform, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, crypto101's most likely going to be the first thing that pops up. You can follow us there. You can also go to cryptorevolution.com if you want to get access to any of our educational materials and join our community and you can follow me on Twitter at pizza mind.
0: All right, thanks a lot Aaron Pizzamind Malone. It was uh, it was great having you on, great uh, great chatting. Uh, I mean, you always have so much so much so much great insights. So I really appreciate it.
1: We don't ha- we don't have any more time to talk about blockchain. Uh, Offline, (laughs) offline.